0: You guys, it's fun drive time again at the Libertarian Institute. That's libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. Our team is growing and getting better all the time. We just published Lori Calhoun's great new book, Questioning the COVID Company Line, Critical Thinking and Hysterical Times, a great collection of essays that she wrote for the Institute. And we've got five more books in the works coming soon, not including the one I'm working on now, Provoked, How America Started the New Cold War with Russia and the Catastrophe in Ukraine. The great Teds, Snyder and Carpenter, now write for us. And we've just brought on our new outreach director, Quinn Triggs, to help us all get our stuff out there where people can see it. We run a tight ship here. Your money goes to pay our writers and podcasters to keep doing their work. Simple as that. But we need some. Especially you incredibly wealthy people out there listening. Help me pay my guys so we can continue to set the standard for libertarian thought for the next generation. And write it off on your taxes. That's LibertarianInstitute.org/donate, and thanks. All right, y'all. Welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Pools Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already. Time to end the war on terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy, and all available for you at ScottHorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line, we've got our old friend Jeff Deist. He was the chief of staff for Dr. Ron Paul, the greatest American who ever lived, former congressman. And then he was the uh, director, I guess, of the uh, Mises Institute for many years. And now he's at a company called Monetary Metals. Not that we're advertising for them because we have a monetary advertiser of our own here. But um, good friend and uh, happy to have you back on the show. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing real good, and I owe you an apology, man. I have your book on the shelf, A Strange Liberty, and I know it's great because I heard you talk about it to other people and things like that, but man, I am up way past my eyeballs writing a book of my own right now. But I swear yours is right at the top of the pile there for getting to when getting to comes.
1: Hey, you know what, Scott? There's plenty of books for you to read. There's, there's. Uh, I'm sure you got a whole bookcase behind you of books that you need to read ahead of mine.
0: No, you know what? I'm actually really interested in what you have to say there and talking with you all about it. Um, We talked a bit about uh, some of the stuff based on articles that you've written in the past uh, on the show before. Um, But this project has got me just underwater, man. What can I say? Um, Artificial deadlines, you know? What are you going to do? Extend them? (laughs) Anyway. Listen, I have you on for a specific reason or two. First of all, I want to talk about The BRICS. No, that's not first of all. Second of all, I want to talk about the BRICS and a new global currency and all these kinds of things. You recently did a very interesting podcast where you interviewed a couple of uh, monetary and economic experts all about that. So Mm -hmm. I want to talk with you all about that. But first and foremost, what I think is really most important when I have a real expert Austrian economist like yourself on the show is for the people who aren't necessarily libertarians or aren't necessarily uh, familiar with the Austrian school of economics – it seems to me, even though there are so many great insights of the Austrian school, the way to really get through to people is the one thing that you guys have over all other schools of economic thought, and that is that you're the only ones who truly understand and can properly explain the reasons behind the boom-bust cycle. And every American lives through it. Every 10 years, the economy crashes and sucks for a while. And then it gets really good, and then it crashes again. And everybody knows, but, you know, government schools always just blame the wild excesses of free market capitalism in the 1920s for causing every problem we have now, somehow. And um, anyway, I already know that you're right, but I know, and I like to encourage people to think of it this way, that if you were anywhere On the left or right spectrum of political beliefs and economic beliefs and whatever, that this is still true. Like, you could be totally for the welfare state, or you could be totally for corporatism in some weird, corrupt way. I don't know. Still, the Austrians are right about the boom and bust, and it's so important. Of course, we're living through it right now. So I was just wondering, thumbnail, can you make it plain for them? what it is and especially in contrast to the way they explain it on CNN if you tune in
1: what's well, interesting people refer to it as a business cycle it's not a business cycle it's a central bank cycle and you talk about people having lived through these booms and busts every 10 years or so the one of the major selling points of the Fed more than 100 years ago now was it was going to smooth these out and <laughs> we weren't going to have these booms and busts anymore so I would say by that measure, it's been a, a significant failure. I mean, right, not too long after the Fed was created, we had the worst depression of the 20th century, and we've had a, a bunch of many and not so many ones since. So if you think that that was the job of the central bank, then arguably it has failed in that primary job. Uh, so I, I would say this is a credit cycle. I would say that politicians and central bankers, not just in America, but Basically, in all Western countries, uh, get together and decide that they can use some combination of monetary and fiscal policy to juice the economy. And by juice the economy, I mean create more money and credit at lower interest rates to increase demand. This is the mania. This is the animating focus of our econ profession today, and especially of bankers, is that we need to stimulate demand. We need to make people want to buy more stuff that that's the keynesian program in a nutshell is that a healthy happy prosperous society is built on consumer demand really up until certainly in the 19th century but really up until the beginning of the 20th century economics was understood to or economists understood this to be the opposite they understood that production precedes consumption. Production's how you build a healthy economy. And so when we say production creates consumption, what we mean is that when people are productive, when they work at their job and create a good or a service, that's what gives them the income and the ability then to become consumers, not the other way around. The fact that we all want more stuff, well, I guess I shouldn't say that. We're all not these grubby materialists, but in general, uh, you don't have to, to to coax people into wanting more stuff, Uh, you have to coax them into being able to afford it. Uh, So we all sort of want more, that's a natural human impulse. But we can't have more until it's actually produced. So modern economics sets this backwards and uses monetary policy in particular to try to create a lot more credit and a lot more debt as a result, at lower interest rates and to increase the money supply in a circuitous way by buying back treasury debt that Uncle Sam issued 5, 10, 20 years ago. And as a result, uh, a a boom of sorts is created. If you give people a bunch of credit at pretty low interest rates, yeah, they'll take you up on it. You know, maybe instead of buying that modest uh, Ford Focus, I'll go ahead and buy that fancier car. You know, maybe instead of buying that modest home that's really within reasonable Affordability for me, I'll buy that big McMansion. You know, whatever it might be, this manifests throughout the economy, not just at the individual level, but at the corporate level. All these mergers and acquisitions, all these giant corporations say, you know, we're supposed to be productive and and make a profit and we're supposed to pay a dividend and all these old fashioned concepts, but gee whiz, if Uncle Sam wants us to be able to borrow money, That's something less than 2% or less than 1% or almost zero. Well, that kind of sounds like gambling with house money. So yeah, we'll take you up on that. And when corporations do that, it creates all kinds of crazy malinvestments throughout the economy. When the cost of borrowing money is what I would argue artificially low, lower than it would be in a free market, then all kinds of projects and businesses and joint ventures and mergers and uh, new service lines and and new stores, all kinds of things start to look good on paper because the cost of capital is so low. But when things start to unravel and interest rates start to rise, um, Warren Buffett famously said, you know, the the tide starts to recede and we we see who's not wearing a bathing suit. So the Austrian term for this is malinvestment A lot of money and time and human energy gets poured into unprofitable things. And so, when all of this eventually goes belly up, we find out that, hey, instead of having production lines for Cadillac Escalades, you know, big fancy gas guzzlers, uh, there should have been production lines being created for Ford Focuses, little small efficient cars, you know, whatever it might be. And there's a million ways that this uh, cycles through the economy, you know, these. Really fancy ice cream places where uh, you know a, a thing of ice cream is eight bucks or something instead of three bucks like it used to be at Baskin Robbins. Uh, all kinds of things, luxury homes, high-end restaurants. I mean, it's, it's just endless. So all kinds of business combinations happen because of this artificially expanded credit market. And so that's the boom and it's a happy time. And it really does make some people rich, uh, you know, investment bankers, early investors, early real estate speculators, anybody who gets out and sells before the bust actually is better off at the end of it all. But that's not average people and that's not the, the society as a whole. So right now, after all this monetary and fiscal stimulus of COVID, you know, 2020, 2021, Congress was involved in that, the Fed was involved in that, both sides. Boy, oh boy, uh, we had a nice narcotic effect there for a couple of years. And a lot of dudes in Austin, Texas, were buying $65,000 ginormous Ford F-150s. Uh, and now that is starting to come to an end. Interest rates are way up. People are paying 8%, 10% to buy a car. People are paying 7 8% to buy a home. And so we're starting to feel the pinch. Uh, We've we've seen some tremors like uh, some bank failures. We've seen some tremors like this Fitch's uh, downgrade of the US credit rating earlier this week and the BRICS currency proposal, which you mentioned earlier, I believe is another tremor. So I I fear that we are facing another very unpleasant episode in American financial life uh, that might well be on par with 2008. And let's
0: let's pray it's not any worse than that. Okay, so this is so important, and this is one of the things that really, you know, helped to make me anti-government as a young man. Because I knew about inflation. Everybody knows about inflation. Everybody talks about it all the time. Prices are going up. Prices are going up. Everything's more expensive. It's so old cliche. You know, what's going on? Or what's up? The cost of living. You know, and the rich get richer, and the poor can't afford to live inside a house anymore and have to live in their car. Um, You know, everybody's familiar with that, but then it's worse. What you're telling me is that same inflation of the money supply that causes the rise in prices for everybody all the time, it also causes the rise in prices in certain sectors way out of control, like housing and the stock market and, as you were saying, the certain, you know, major firms, they're speculating on land that they need for, I don't know, clear-cutting or quarrying or whatever it is, mining or whatever it is. Everybody starts making bad bets based on that same inflation that drives the prices up for everyone, and then that's what leads to the crash. So, like, for regular people just living their life with working jobs and living through this and watching the TV version of this, the TV version of this, whether it's 99 or 2008 or coming up here real soon when the crash comes, when it does come is, oh, how do you like that? The economy was humming along and then all of a sudden it wasn't. And then, but so what you're saying is that, no, it was kind of a big fake, you know, boom before the very real bust. And that to me is the great insight that even as a teenager was like, ah, see, that's how they get you, you know? And then of course... The biggest corporations and the wealthiest individuals, they get to buy up everybody else's bankrupt property, intellectual and physical, who go bankrupt, who are really doing all the great innovating and everything. So, you know, it's arguable how purposeful this all is. I i do give a lot of credence to the idea that the people in charge never read Mises and don't care and don't want to know uh, what a criticism of their policy would look like in any real sense. But um I think it's just so important. And then I'm always trying to figure out, so where on the cycle are we? And going back to my um, – and and you know my limitations on this. Jeff, as an economist, I'm a great anti-war guy. So I, I take much more of the kind of uh, layman's uh, introductory sort of level of view of this stuff. Like, for example – I think it's chapter 11 of Murray Rothbard's book, uh, For a New Liberty, where he talks about inflation and the business cycle. And he says that whenever they try to, they go, "Uh uh-oh, we kind of got a little carried away there, dude. And then they try to prick the bubble and let a little bit of air out slowly, but that never works. It always pops. There's always a giant crash. And um, in fact, uh, this is what I was going to say earlier that I forgot. Uh, You probably remember um, that Peter Schiff, who I know you're familiar with, he gave this famous speech in 2006, I think it was, to the mortgage bankers out west, out in Las Vegas, where they had these huge bubbles, right, in in Phoenix and in Las Vegas and in L.A. as the worst of the housing bubbles, right and what he told them he goes he he like drew a line i don't know if he even had a graph or something but he he like drew a sine wave and he goes look as much as it goes up artificially from what real productivity would be what real gdp would be as much as it's artificially up that's how low it's going to go bro and then one of the guys in the audience at the question time, the guy says, so what are you saying? I should just slit my wrists? And he goes, I'm saying you should sell every house that you own right now, fool, before it's too late. Because And so is that really, does that make sense to you? That's essentially right, that as much as it's a giant fake boom, that's how low it's going to bust. Because i got to tell you, man, I've seen some charts that compare the housing bubbles and prices now to 2008. And if that holds true, then we're looking at the end of the world here, pal yeah it
1: it is scary and especially for younger people who are trying to maybe buy a home for the first time now with you know the same house at 3% mortgage rate versus 7 or 8 you know the monthly payment doubles on the same house and you end up paying way more interest relative to principal over the life of the mortgage especially if you take all 30 years to pay it off so that's that's discouraging to me I will say that lending standards have not been as loose as they were in that period that's featured in the big short, the movie, which is basically from about 04 to 07, there was a real period of casino uh, mortgages, there were a lot of fly by net companies, a lot of what they call liar loans with no documentation, Uh, you know, and that movie sort of made famous the idea of strippers or taxi cab drivers having you know, seven or eight houses and leverage to the gills because it doesn't matter because number go up. And then when number go down, uh, everybody goes bankrupt and you have a lot of a lot of harm spread across society. So I don't think this housing bust is on par with that simply because the lending hasn't been that profligate. But I would say the commercial side of that commercial real estate scares the living daylights out of me because you know, COVID there was already a work from home movement.
0: Uh, yeah, let me stop right go. there on, on housing real quick. It's just but prices have gone up so much. So I understand what you're saying, that there's less fraud in it, but that's still all those payments are being made by people who the booming economy, they're depending on the booming economy to keep them in those mortgages all the same, right? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Okay. And I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. So it's it's a scary time for commercial real estate. You
1: know, even before COVID, there was a huge work-from-home movement, and now, uh, since COVID, downtowns across America that used to be full of office workers are really empty. Uh, San Francisco, in particular, is just remarkable. But New York City's not back in terms of its commercial occupancy. Lots of cities. I was in Pittsburgh recently. It was really sad being downtown. You know, it was a weekday middle of the day um, to see how empty that was. And uh, you can watch YouTube about how empty San Francisco is, Market Street, which is a major artery there, Uh, all those vacant storefronts. So uh, I think commercial real estate is going to be the really rough ride. And that that, uh, bubbles through the economy because there's so many lenders involved in that. There's so many big players involved in that.
0: Yeah, you know, uh Especially when you're talking, all those skyscrapers full. I mean, these are huge investments, bazillion dollar buildings that it's that intervention. I mean, it was already the case that everybody's phone and PC made their office job obsolete, right? But you still had to come to work because that was the way it was. But once they changed all that with COVID, I don't know what percentage of the people are not coming back who kept their office jobs, but get to work at home. But it's a lot. And I could see how from the point of view of the market, of holding up all of those extremely expensive buildings that must rely on absolute tons of cash flow constantly to keep them, you know, maintained and clean and every other thing to keep them available for anybody else to even try to move into. I could see a real uh, collapse coming there, you know, and then what are they going to do? Bunch of giant empty skyscrapers?
1: Well, also retail storefronts. Office parks, mm-hmm. uh, there, there's a lot of examples of this. So it's um, uh, shopping malls, uh, restaurants have had a rough go as well with hiring especially. So it's gonna be a very interesting time and we're gonna have to repurpose so much of these buildings. And and again, that shows you malinvestment. investment. It's not so easy to repurpose a skyscraper built for business into let's say uh, low income housing for homeless or something, it's, it's not so easy.
0: Yeah, sorry, hang on just one second. Hey y'all, Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton hotter than the sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, scorpion peppers, Dr. Pepper, hydrogen isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code Scott to get a free bottle of hotter than the sun hot sauce. That's TNHotsauceCo.com. Hey, y'all gotta check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casali's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasali.comslash Ron ronpaul and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton and you'll save 25 bucks, and this show will get a little kickback too. That's rickcasale.com slash ronpaul. Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Man, um, there's so much at stake here and so much going on. So um, let's talk about the rest of the world being entirely sick of the American empire. And, you know, Fiona Hill, who is, uh, you know, the Russia hawk and features in Trump's phony uh, first impeachment and all of that. Uh, She gave a speech recently where she said, look, it isn't just that, you know, we pushed Russia away and all that. She says this huge percentage of the earth, at least as represented by their sovereign governments, they are taking the opportunity of the war in Ukraine to essentially try to get to side more or less loosely with Russia, but more importantly, side against the United States and the Western dominated world order, which is somehow i don't know exactly all underpinned by american money and ever since world war ii instead of having gold bricks all the sovereign governments keep american hundred dollar bills in their vaults and that underpins all of their debts and this and that and whatever and how they do they handle all kinds not just oil but all kinds of international exchanges in dollars and at the very least jeff i know that there is a hell of a motive on the part of a lot of countries, as even Fiona Hill was fretting, to find a way out from under American domination, and particularly dollar domination. On the other hand, Every central banker in the world only knows how to do one thing, print money. So why would anybody choose their crappy currencies over our crappy currency? And I've heard it said by rich people who seem to know about these things that, hell, you think America's money gets debased and we got problems with inflation all the time. Look at X, Y, and Z, man. They're an absolute disaster. So you're supposed to come up with some kind of market basket of currencies. I think they they talked about that after 08, right? They said, we're going to come up with a market basket of some kind of new global currency to undercut the dollar. But nobody was willing to invest in it because it wasn't going to pay off. So, um, oh, wait, one more thing about this before I forget. I thought it was funny. I saw a tweet. I don't know who it was. Some guy gets credit. Random guy gets credit. Um, The news story was the Russians told the Indians. The Indians tried to pay the Russians with rupees for some, I don't know, gas or metal or something. And the Russians told them, yeah, no, no. We'll take whatever, rubles or dollars or whatever it is, but we won't take rupees. And then uh, so somebody in a smart aleck tweet said, yeah, everybody's a multilateralist until somebody tries to settle their account with rupees. And then all of a sudden, not so much, you know. Uh, So anyway, I wonder what you think of all of that, because it's obviously huge moves on a planetary scale. Um, I wonder what you make of the so-called threat of it all. And then what? really would the result look like for America? Is that a threat that this would hurt the American people if somehow the dam broke and everybody left the dollar for something else?
1: Well, absolutely that would hurt the American people because we've enjoyed for many, many decades now, what the French uh, finance minister called our exorbitant privilege, which was uh, allowing us to export inflation essentially and buy cheaper goods from abroad because the whole world needs dollars. and has since Bretton Woods and has especially needed them since 1971. And so uh, international trade, the SWIFT system, buying oil, clearing transactions across borders, these mostly take place using US dollars. So if you look at central banks around the world, if you look at fiscal treasuries around the world, they've all got lots of dollars. Most of them have lots of treasuries as well. And it's just the nature of things. So while it's certainly uh, in much of the world's interest to see the U.S. dollar dethrone in the long term, in the short term they'd be hurt too, because they've got lots of dollars in dollar-denominated treasuries, and if those de- devalued quickly, uh, you know, unless they got out first like musical chairs, they'd be holding the bag. So it's very, very interesting, and I think we have to understand this two ways. First, there's the the, the economics of it, but in the in the monetary system, which is quite complex. Uh, you know, 8 billion economic actors around the world. But the other overlay is the geopolitical element of it. And there's lots of ways to wage war. You can wage war through litigation. You can wage war through uh, currency. You can wage war militarily. You can wage war culturally. Uh, So, you know, war isn't just always armies and planes and aircraft carriers. And I think Jim Rickards deserves credit. To my knowledge, he came up with the, the term currency wars and he wrote a book. Titled that. I can't recall what year that was, maybe early 2010s. And so the idea that the BRICS countries would try to move against us, form some sort of uh, currency amongst themselves, is certainly rational. Um, Jim Rickards has written about very recently about what the mechanics of that would look like. So I, I encourage people interested to Google him. Also, Alistair MacLeod in the UK has written some great articles about what he thinks would be the mechanics of a BRICS currency. Uh, I'm not sold because, first of all, the whole thing's been pretty sketchy. It was announced uh, at a Russian embassy in Africa that this proposal would be entertained at the upcoming August meeting of the BRICS in South Africa, Um, but it was never really confirmed out of Moscow. The Indians have denied it. Uh, I think that the Chinese and the Brazilians, I believe, have been silent on it. And of course, none of these countries have been, um, let's say, frugal with their own central banking. I mean, they all have huge fiscal and monetary policy problems of their own. And Russia's got you know, problems with sanctions and a declining population and all kinds of things. Uh, but nonetheless, it's an intriguing idea that they might form not necessarily a a currency that individuals or businesses would use amongst them each other and then redeemable in gold so they're not really talking about a redeemable currency the way you and i might like a, a gold backed currency but i think what they're talking about is a trading currency just between those nations member nations settling international transactions between their central banks and then they could all basically pledge their gold as back as backing for this and if they didn't trust each other which they probably don't, uh, they could actually keep their gold at home, not ship it to some central vault, and just have an accounting arrangement between them, you know, what they've pledged. Um, that would probably show less dedication to this new idea. But nonetheless, um, a- again, you know, the the world w- uh, has been bullied by the U.S. dollar. It has been a tool of empire. It has allowed us to force the rest of the world to dance to our tune, And it has also financed all kinds of military adventurism and wars in the sense that uh, we're we're able to sell treasury debt uh, very easily at very low rates of interest, or we haven't until the last couple of years, to people all around the world, knowing that worst case scenario, our own central bank will back it up so we can go back to the civil war and see before the Fed and see that that was financed by uh, bond issuance, by debt. Uh, certainly World War I was financed by Treasury debt. World War II was enormously financed by Treasury debt. And then uh, you know we ran deficits during Vietnam, and we ran huge deficits under George W. Bush uh, with our Middle Eastern adventure. So uh, w- one thing often unremarked uh, that our US dollar domination has allowed us to do is spend beyond our means on not just welfareism, but also warfare. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's no question that the US dollar is, has been weaponized. I know that's kind of a goofy, overused term, but it's true. And the rest of the world, even our so called allies in Europe, I think have been harmed by that. And in a certain sense, the American people have been harmed by that because even though it's awfully nice to go to Walmart and there's lots and lots of incredibly cheap stuff there you know, we get a lot of for our dollar, not so much food anymore, but, you know, flip flops or, you know, whatever you're buying at, at Walmart. Um, but, you know, it's made us lazier at home. It's made us less productive at home. It's given us a false sense of um, material comfort at home. It's given us a false sense of how wealthy we are. And I think in the long run, that is never good mm-hmm. for a country or an economy. We, we pride ourselves here in America. Oh, we're so productive. Our workers are so productive. Our economy is so productive. We're so wealthy. We can bail out the rest of the world. We can give foreign aid to everybody. Mm-hmm. And if they won't take that, we can bomb them, you know, the carrot and the stick. Uh, so much of this hubris, I think, in the American psyche is fueled by a false sense of our own wealth.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Live wealth is power. Minds. You know, that reminds me of um, the way—how uh, do you like this metaphor? Um, David Stockman says, you know, when we talk about all these bubbles, the 99 bubble, the 2008 bubble, our COVID crisis aftermath that we're living through now, these are the little bubbles on top of the great big dollar deformation bubble since World War II. It sounds like that's what you're describing, is getting away with murder ever since Bretton Woods.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um... It's been a privilege, but it's also been a curse, and the rest of the world is realizing that, and they're making moves. This BRICS proposal, this, uh, I mentioned the credit downgrade by Fitches earlier this week of the of the U.S. credit. Uh, these might just be little tremors, but you put mm-hmm. enough of these little tremors together, and, and I think we all feel that the the world order is mm-hmm. changing and shifting, and... Uh, I'm not sure Americans are prepared to have a 21st century, which is not the American century.
0: Yeah. So uh, in the last few minutes here, I want to talk about China. This is something that came up in your great interview uh, on your podcast about this. And I'm sorry, what's the name of your new podcast, Jeff?
1: Well, we do a Twitter spaces every Friday, but then we turn it into a podcast, which is called
0: Debased, which is, uh, which is, you
1: know, not just the currency, but the ways in which it... It, I think, hurts us as a society.
0: Right. Okay. So you guys had this great conversation about China in there. And this is so interesting to me already, and I wanted to talk to you about it. But plus, you just brought up some points there about um, the inflationary money kind of making all this outsourcing possible. So this has been a huge project, um, the, the globalist project, especially since the end of the Cold War, to... Um, create at least a de facto world government run out of DC, right? And with the these free trade agreements, I think Raimondo, Justin Raimondo at antiwar.com did such a great job of explaining the division of labor here, where like in Korea and Japan and in Europe, we put our military there and we're in charge of your foreign policy, but we'll give you free and open access to our markets to sell all your crap, even if that undermines working people here. So we're not talking about... well. And th- but then there's two different questions. In fact, I'm, I'm making a tangent, but hopefully it'll make sense. I was really into this kind of John Bircher, anti-New World Order, anti-globalism stuff in the 1990s. And yet I never really was a right-winger. I always was more of a Harry Brown and a Ron Paul guy. Um, and, and Ron did write about this kind of stuff at the time. But I remember when I first read LouRockwell.com, I think maybe the first thing I ever read by Lou. It was obviously, Here's the guy who leans right for a libertarian, and yet here he just, in no uncertain terms, denounced all right-wing protectionism against China, and was in favor of free trade with China, and in favor of, of ultimate free exchange between our society and theirs in every way in order to undermine war, and the, these right-wingers, they don't know what the hell they're talking about when it comes to that kind of stuff. So... These things are obviously in conflict in our modern society, where the globalization of trade comes with the globalization of government, comes with the globalization of the American empire. You know, a lot of the empire is is in the name of what they call free trade, which is a lot of these kind of rigged imperial-type agreements and all of that. But so then... A huge part of what's going on in American politics now is the aftermath of all of this outshoring of American manufacturing to China and Mexico too, but especially to China over the last thirty years, really, right? since h w. Bush and the end of the Cold war, uh, especially and and the uh, I guess under Clinton and that whole regime there. And so, but instead of it being what Lou Rockwell was talking about, where it's just free market capitalism, buddy, and prices mm-hmm. and things, we're talking about these massive projects, right? This is the, the David Rockefeller's dream in his memoir. It was like this was to create this giant global interdependent government slash pseudo free market system, what Bill Clinton calls free markets and democracy, right? Um, and so – now we have this huge reaction against that because we didn't have like the what the market would have determined to be the proper amount of outsourcing before it cost so many Americans their jobs that they're too poor to buy the crap that the company's importing anymore right at that point you got to stop outsourcing and the market is pushing back but they rigged it so that now 30 years later they kind of got away they caught the whole rust belt and everything right They just closed everything down and so, um, it's, you know, anyway, I'm going somewhere with this, right, which is like the discrepancy between what a real libertarian and a real free trader wants in terms of, of global trade and capitalism versus what we've had with this neoliberalism instead of libertarianism for the last 30 years here and the effect of that. and And look at how much the right, I think, I don't know about the Republican Party, but I know right-wing people overall are over what they call libertarian free market capitalist economics because of this enough of the free traders we're all buchananites now this kind of thing so i'm sorry for rambling on so long but you're nodding at me like you understand that i'm sort of making a point so what do you think about all that
1: that's interesting how there's been a reaction to this neoliberal capitalism and the what people talk about is the new right whether that's the Patrick Deneen types or the Orrin Cass types, uh, I think that's reactionary. I mean, that's the idea that we've we've hollowed things out, and I'm not sure that all of that so-called free trade that occurred was really market-based. I think a lot of it was machinations like NAFTA, uh, machinations like the uh, you know between the OECD nations, machinations like GATT, and some of these other big treaties that uh, libertarian groups like Cato supported, but the people like the Mises Institute and Ron Paul did not support because they saw them as basically cronyist type agreements. And, you know, we've seen the effects of this. Um, Look, I'm a free trader, but I can also acknowledge challenges. I I remember Pat Buchanan after the Fukushima uh, event. uh, There was a a period of 6 to 12 months where all the Japanese car dealers in America, like Honda, uh, didn't have enough cars and parts because they were all reliant on just-in-time delivery systems from Japan operating just in time. And then something like Fukushima happens and they're not operating. And Pat Buchanan said, aha, see, I told you, we're too dependent. We outsourced all of our Honda parts. And you know, more recently during COVID, when we had all kinds of supply chain disruptions and shipping disruptions around the world, it turns out that Taiwan is, is the overwhelming manufacturer of chips chip technology for all kinds of applications you know computers but also refrigerators and the aforementioned Ford F150s you know cars don't go anymore unless they have a chip and so we had all these cars that were basically done s- sitting on lots rotting just waiting for the chip and we couldn't get it and so that's the sort of thing that gives protectionist ammo i think in this in this un- unhappy uh, divisive society of ours
0: But how utopian and crazy is it then to think of what you know it would have been if Ron had won in 88 and Harry won had won and Harry Brown had won in 96 and we'd had instead of Bill Clinton and W Bush neoliberalism we'd had actual libertarianism where the the principle was absolutely we want free and open trade with China but also absolutely we won't do anything as a national government to help corporations bear the cost of outsourcing and getting away with firing entire towns worth of american people well, it'd
1: be a, I think it would be a happier and more peaceful world. That's, that's all I'll say in closing.
0: There you go. Well, fair enough. Um, okay. Well, thank you, Jeff, for your time. I learned a lot. I really appreciate it. Um, everybody, you can follow Jeff Deist on Twitter at Jeff Dice, and he's at Monetary Metals. That's monetary-metals.com. Really appreciate you, man. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.